This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number 10 of the series dealing with the book of the Revelation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us the 40th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. Those of us who have read this Isaiah 40, <coughs> we're at the second half of this great prophecy and it opens with the words, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And coming now near to the end of the book of the Revelation with its awful judgments and its terrible wickedness, we're going to hear the words, Behold, I make all things new. So there is a day to which all things are pressing. Weeping may endure for a night, says scripture. May. But joy cometh. No may about it. Cometh in the morning. So there is linked always in the scriptures with the idea of hope, the word patience. The patience of hope. Before we turn from Isaiah 40 to the book of the Revelation, it might be useful for some to just look at the way in which these words in the first part of it are or should be emphasised. Verse 3, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepares the way of the Lord. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. 4, now, what guarantee have we got for that? 4, the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, cry. You see? Now the prophet turns round to the Lord and says, in so many words, it's all very well to tell me to say this, but all flesh is grass. What's the good of me going to these people and telling them these things? The grass withers. It's only going to be blown upon. Surely the people is grass. And the Lord picks up the words again and he says, yes, yes. The grass withering. You're quite right, Isaiah. The flower faded. You're perfectly correct, Isaiah. But, but, the word of our God shall stand forever. I told you just now, for the voice, for the uh, mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Well, that's our basis, friends. If we look about us, we can't see any possibility of man ever attaining to this blessed state. They are really, the men of this world, are doing their very best that they can. And all the time you can see them gradually bringing about the full fulfilment of what is going to take place in the book of the Revelation. They are working for a united Europe. They are working for a united world government little knowing that there's a master player of this chessboard who's using their very best intentions to bring about the most horrible consequences. No wonder Isaiah, who had a glimpse of this, said, what's the good of me telling these people that all flesh is grass? But isn't it good for us to know that the purpose of God is not going to be brought about by leagues and councils and votes, whether they veto or whether they say yes. It's because the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Yes. 
Well, that's our basis. We have no other friends. If it could be proved to us that God could speak and no result would take place, strictly speaking, the bottom would drop out of our universe and like in another context, we should be, of all men, most miserable. Well, we won't go on in that strain, but I thought it was wise for us to see the way in which that little altercation is carried out in Isaiah 40. Comfort ye. Now we've come to the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. We have been skirting, I never went through all the dreadful plagues. We didn't consider all the horrible things that are said about this people. But we know full well it is there. And in the 19th chapter, we came to the point when the Alleluias went up and Babylon was destroyed. Well now, before we go into the question, particularly of the millennium, of what it stands for, or even to consider in detail one or two features in chapter 19, I think as we're approaching this closing section, it would do us good to get it all patterned out in front of us. You see, there is a saying in the world, isn't there, that you sometimes don't see the wood for the trees. Well, let's notice that in spite of all the wonderful things that have been, have been said and are to be said, it is still under control. And if you will glimpse at this chart, you will see that we have, first of all, in contrast, the harlot, which is most definitely set over against the bride, the harlot decked out with gold and scarlet and whatnot, and then the story changes and we have the bride of the Lamb. That's the one great essential change. And then we are assured, as you read these things, these are the true sayings of God. Shall we look at chapter 19? And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honour and power unto the Lord our God. There are several ascriptions of praise like this. That is to say, they're not saying that God himself needs salvation, but they are ascribing to him the fact that salvation and glory and power all come from him. And this judgment has fallen and now hallelujahs go up. Then it says in verse 6, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's the most magnificent statement, the very words, omnipotent. And of course, very few of us can help reading those words without hearing Handel's music. But do remember that in the first chapter, of the book of the Revelation, you've got exactly the same words. <coughs> Verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, <coughs> the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Omnipotent. Don't forget that the Lord God Omnipotent is the reigning King. And the reigning King is Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's the Lord God Omnipotent of these chapters anyhow. Whether he's the Lord God Omnipotent to you is another matter. That I cannot settle. But the very word is used in this chapter with all its magnificence, which is echoed from the first chapter. Christ, 
throughout the Bible is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and he at last is reigning. <coughs> then comes a call to rejoice. Rather, coming at a very uh, critical moment, isn't it? Of course, the marriage that's going to take place at Westminster Abbey cannot possibly compare with any such service that we have in this chapel. I'm not saying that they're important and we are not. But on the other hand, everybody's agog just now with the marriage of Princess Margaret. Well, let's be all agog for another marriage that's yet coming. A more wonderful one than ever. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. You think of all that's been said about the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The opposition of the Lamb of God which is mentioned, they've made war with the Lamb. Think of the dreadful words, the wrath of the Lamb has come. And now be glad, rejoice in anticipation, friends, for that Lamb of God is at last going to enter in to the glorious results and fruit of his sufferings and his death. The marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. You will find <coughs> that this means the righteous awards to saints. We're going to look at all these things presently, but just in passing. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. <coughs> now, in another set of these tape recordings, we have discussed the place that John's Gospel occupies in its relation to the purpose of God, and we found that it fitted in to the parable of the marriage of the king's son, when those who were invited, twice invited, refused, their city was destroyed and burned, and then another ministry was sent out into the highways and gathered the good and the bad, that the wedding should be furnished with guests. Well, John's Gospel is the only Gospel that fits that ministry. And John gives you as his first sign the marriage of Cana at Galilee. And John is the only one who tells you that John the Baptist was the friend of the bridegroom. All those many indications that John's Gospel, preaching everlasting life upon the simple fact of believing that Christ is the Son of God, he is gathering out from the wide world those who shall sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb as guests. So it says here, blessed are they, and they are blessed, which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto thee, these are the true sayings of God. So there's a summing up there, these are the true sayings of God. Occasionally you will find in Paul's writings, he adopts the same formula. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. This is. And so, it's a little pause for a moment. It says, this, think of it. These, these are the true sayings of God. And then it's very wonderful to think that John, who knew the truth, it says, I fell at his feet to worship him. You know, we've never met an angel in reality, have we? I don't know what the effect would be upon us, but when a man with the integrity of Daniel was suddenly confronted with an angel, he fell on his face and his comeliness turned to corruption. 
We have no idea of the character of a spiritual being. We couldn't stand it at the moment. What a change is going to take place, friends, when you and I will possess spiritual bodies according to 1 Corinthians 15 and have a place which is not merely with the angels. I mean, we could with all modesty sing that hymn, I want to be an angel and with the angels stand, but we couldn't sing it today because we are blessed far about principality of power. We can't say those words without realising what a tremendous thing, what a wonderful change must be ahead of us if that's going to be possible. So it says here, I fell at his feet, he said, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant <coughs> and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So there's another little hint there. This witness concerning our Saviour is that hidden line that runs right through all prophecy, leading from the first prophetic utterance of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head, and he shall be bruised in the heel in the process, until at last that serpent is taken, and his dreadful work is finished. Well then we have a series of statements that commence with the words, And I saw. Here we have the first one, verse 11. And I saw. And then again in verse 17, and I saw. And again in verse 19, and I saw. And so it goes on. I don't think we, we could ignore this division. You see, if we do this first of all, we should have parceled out the subject a little bit before us, that we can go back without being choked by the mass of detail. Let's see what it says. And I saw, verse 11, Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Oh, at last it's come, friends. The book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The coming of the Saviour. In the fullness of time, he came nearly 2,000 years ago, the lowly man of sorrows. And in the fullness of seasons, he's coming very soon as the rider on the white horse. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we have these, uh, this, the first thing that John says, I saw. We won't read all the description of this because it will mean that we shall be occupying our attention on one feature. So let's move down the chapter and look at the next. The 17th verse. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. There's a dreadful alternative here, friends, almost too horrible to think of. There are two suppers, two suppers, in this book of the Revelation. One is the supper of the marriage of the Lamb, and the other is calling upon the carrion vultures of heaven to the supper of God in connection with the armies that have been taken in their rebellion. And then again in verse 19 we have the beast. We've already considered a little about his character in chapter 13. The travesty of the resurrection. The false prophet that forced his image upon all men and caused those men to be slain who would not bear his mark. And here it says, I saw the beast 
and the kings of the earth. And their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. This is definitely against the law. This is not merely an accident. They are opposing the Son of God. You think of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers of the council take, the rulers of the people take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us cast away their bands from us. It's a rebellion against the holiness of God. It's a rebellion against the Christ of God. He is always the centre and the target of this dreadful animosity. But the time has come when no more slack is going to be allowed. The beast was taken. And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles. And those that worshipped the beast. And they found their place in that dreadful lake of fire. Chapter 20 And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is called the devil, which is the devil and Satan, bound him a thousand years. And there he would be, right through the millennial kingdom, loosed afterwards and then ultimately finished. The next step is verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. Notice how many times you're told about someone sitting on a throne. In the fourth chapter, and he that sat upon me was like this. I saw thrones, I sat upon them. You must never think of this as a sort of a comfortable seat, made for somebody who's a bit tired. To sit in this seat, or this throne, is to exercise authority. You do know, don't you, and I think we've all mentioned it before, that a cathedral is called a cathedral because the word cathedra means a seat. And it's not somebody who's sitting in there tired, it's the bishop who occupies that chair. He speaks out of the chair, he speaks ex cathedra, and that becomes the cathedral church and the cathedral city. Well here, it's sitting on the throne and exercising authority. Our Lord said about the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Well, if you said, oh, where's Moses' seat? You wouldn't find it in Jerusalem, at the corner of a busy thoroughfare. They're occupying the place of authority. So here, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Then we come to chapter, the same chapter, but verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. And when we consider the place and bearing of this great white throne, I think we should discover that we've made a tremendous mistake with regard to it. We nearly always speak about the great white throne judgment as the judgment of all the wicked dead that have ever lived. Well, I think you'll discover that that cannot be made to hold water when we're considering this book of the Revelation. But we'll leave it till we get to it. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened they were judged according to their works just an anticipation of what we should look at. Every church mentioned in the chapter 2 and 3, I know thy works, I know thy works. This is a judgment of somebody according to their works. But we'll leave the problems that arise out of it till we come back to it presently. Chapter 21, we're still on this, and I saw. 
You see, it wasn't without meaning that he said in the first chapter, the angel sent and signified to me. He showed me the things which thou hast seen, said the Lord, put down in a book. He saw a whole series of signs, a panorama going in front of him. And he was putting them down, and then we have to interpret them according to the pattern of the rest of Old Testament imagery. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw. And I saw a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now there's a possibility that doesn't refer to the ocean. It may refer to the abyss. It may refer to what is called the deep in Genesis 1 verse 2. We'll look at the reasons for that a little bit in detail presently. And then, I don't know why, but possibly, John was getting worked up a little bit. I can't believe that a man could have all these visions and yet sit himself quite unmoved. He says, and I, John, saw the holy city. Well, let's enjoy his enthusiasm. Say thank you, John. And through your eyes, we get a glimpse of it too. I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. So the bride is associated with the heavenly Jerusalem. The bride was prepared for a husband, and the city of the bride is prepared for a husband. So I think we shall find that the restored wife, Israel, will be on the earth in the millennium, and the elect company of overcomers who constitute the bride will be in the heavenly Jerusalem. The one ruling on the earth, the other ruling over the earth, but all in good time. I hope I shall be able to redeem all these promises I'm making, but still, we are having a good try to get your interest focused upon the construction of this passage. And then we get in uh, verses 2 to 5 these words. I, John, saw. Let's read these, these words. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And it looks as though this, of course, takes place after the millennium is over, after the thousand years are finished, and the new heavens and the new earth are here. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with Israel? No, it was. No other people had a tabernacle under the order of God. Only Moses received the instruction for a tabernacle for God to dwell among his people. But now it's wider. The tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them. And be their God. I think that was one of the reasons why he said, I, John, saw this. Oh, he said, this is wonderful, isn't it? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, he said. Not for ours only, but for the sin of the whole world, he said in the first epistle. And he said, it's come, it's come. And this is the symbol of it. I saw that jewel city coming down. The Lamb is the light thereof. The kings of the earth are going to walk in the light of it. God is going to be their God. The tabernacle of God is with men. For you say you're getting a bit enthusiastic yourself, aren't you? Yes, I'm catching the fever, friends. It would be a bad plan if we all caught it, would it? All to be able to see 
What an influence that had on Abraham, didn't it? How was it that Abraham could live the life he did? Instead of repining and saying, look what I've suffered, look what I've given up, I left over the Chaldees and here am I like this. Oh, he says, he was quite willing. For he saw that which was invisible to the eyes of men. He looked for a city which had foundations. And one of the characteristics of this city, oh, it's got some foundations, friends. Every city ought to have good foundations. But as long as they're down underneath and they're pretty solid, doesn't matter much what they're made of. Concrete, granite, rock. Oh, not so this city. But I'm, I'm uh, going a bit in front of my time, aren't I? I'll, there's something else to be said here which is so wonderful. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You know, the person who's going to be a weeny, tiny bit sad in that day is the person who's got no tears to wipe away. Fancy having to stand there and see other people having their tears wiped away by God himself. And you never shed tears, friends. Well, you never walked in company with the Son of Man. For one of the most wonderful passages in the whole Word of God is that someone who could say, I am the resurrection and the life, in the very same chapter it says, that same one, Jesus wept. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And then we come to the no mores of this book. No more. There are others in other parts. No more the sound of the grindstone. No more the craftsman. No more the musician. No more the voice of the bride and the bridegroom. The dreadful no mores of Babylon. But here's the other side. There shall be no more death. All what an end's coming here, friend. No more death. Do you remember what it says after the millennium? After the millennium, our Saviour must reign until all enemies are under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here it is. No more death. It's here for a period. It's worked its dreadful way. And he who had the power of the death of, of the devil is taken and sorrow and sighing. There shall be no, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And I've said before, but I must repeat myself, that that conception of the word new, keep it in your mind. Whenever you use the word new of God, remember that you're able to say, and the former things are passed away. That is the reason why Ecclesiastes is perfectly true. There's nothing new under the sun. There's only something different under the sun. It's not new. When God says something new, he says the former things are passed away. But he says, I make all things new. There's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. So sometimes we've had a little fun with folks at the beginning of the year. We say, oh, you wish me a happy new year. What? No rates? No taxes, no sorrow, no wars. Oh, yes, plenty of them. Oh, but it's not a new year, friend, it's only another one. But when God says new, he practically always says, if any man be in Christ, there's a new creation. Behold, 
All things are passed away. New things are coming to being. That's what it says in the Old Testament. It says it in Corinthians. It says it here. So that's the idea of new. Well, having said that, John says, I better assure you that this is true. I don't say he was reading Isaiah 40, but the same spirit had he said unto me, right, for these words are true and faithful. Don't forget it. Don't say, oh, this is a dream you've had. I, John, saw this and I heard this. And the voice said, cry. And Isaiah said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. God says, I've spoken it, haven't I, Isaiah? And he says, it seems almost too good to be true, friends. But these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. Now it's not a very stretch, great stretch of imagination to know that it is done is very, very near to it is finished. Two sides of a wondrous work. On the cross, it is finished. And then at the second coming, it is done. The same hand, the same voice, the same person, the same instrument, this king wore a crown of thorns when he said, it is finished. But this king will be wearing many diadems when he says, it is done. And again, we're glad, aren't we? He's back again to what he said about himself in the first chapter. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, or possibly the margin. He that overcometh shall inherit these things. All these things that are now coming into being, these new things. Then there's a contrast to the fearful and the unbelieving. And so we work our way through. In chapter 21, 9, to chapter 22, 7, we have the bride, the holy Jerusalem again, and the river of water of life. Shall we just see these three? Chapter 21, verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. You remember, those words are almost identical with what we read in chapter 17. I think um, it's very similar. Chapter 17. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with thee saying, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. The dreadful travesty of the bride. Now the real thing. He came unto me and said, I will show thee, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, sent descending out of heaven from God. So again we've got it, that this heavenly Jerusalem is associated with the marriage of the Lamb and descends at the end of the millennium to the earth. We'll have to consider some of, some of the statements about it when we're looking at it a bit more in detail, but at the moment we'll go on having the glory of God, and her light was like unto stone most precious, even like jasper stone clear as crystal. 
and a wall great and high, twelve gates, and the names of the tribes of Israel, and every gate of pearl. We are told about its length, we're told that it lies four square, and uh, then we get the foundations. Verse 18, And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold like unto clear glass, and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. And among other things, we find that the names of the apostles were on those foundation stones, even as the name of Israel was upon every one of the gates of Pearl. And then I also wonder, when I look at verse 22, and I saw, this is the added one after a long gap, whether the writer is telling us that he, he was waiting to give us a wonderful surprise. You know, he said, I, John, saw. Oh, and he gives you the description of this city. Well, that is, I was just getting ready. I don't know whether John had a notebook or whether he trusted to his memory, but it seems to me as I read this, he said, but now wait, you wait. If this city is so wonderful, with its streets of gold, its gates of pearl, its foundations of precious stones, what will the temple be like? And he had a most glorious disappointment, friends. You say, glorious disappointment? Yes. He couldn't describe the temple, for there wasn't one. Don't you see, friends? Don't let's get things out of perspective. So long as there's a priest, so long as there's a temple, you're far off from God. There you need a mediator between God and yourself. But the time has come when the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and the priesthood has finished, the sacrifices are done. God himself, God himself and man at long last. So you're not lost anything because the heavenly Jerusalem hasn't got the finest temple on earth. It's more wonderful to think that it's never, it hasn't got one at all. But he says, I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And then again, what about this glorious blaze of light that's associated with this heavenly Jerusalem? And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. So far as we are concerned, it's impossible for us to think how anyone could live and life could be sustained without the sun. In the ordinary way, uh, the scientists can make your blood run cold, you know, like the fat boy in Dickens, by telling you that if the sun should suddenly be blotted out, then to the next second or two, the whole world would become just one solid block of ice, and all life would be extinct. Think of it. And this man says, you needn't worry. You needn't worry. There's no sun up here, he said. The city had no need of the sun. Neither the moon to shine. For the glory of God did lighten it. I wonder whether we've ever grasped in any sense what the glory of God means. In the Old Testament, Isaiah, the fullness of the whole earth is the glory of God. 
The glory of God is the fullness of the whole earth. Put it which way you like. If only you and I could labour entirely for the glory of God, we should be doing ourselves the very best turn possible. For the glory of God is associated with absolute and utter fruitfulness and blessing. So while we leave the glory of God out, we're leaving out that which is the foundation of all our possible hopes. The glory of God did lighten it. And while we're speaking of the word glory, it's a very strange thing to realise that doxa, doxa, the word glory, which is in our word doxology, means, the original word means to seem. To seem. We say, oh dear, the glory of God is only something that seems. Yes. But the point is this, that God will be what he seems to be, and that's different from everybody else. That's the glory of God. What I have demonstrated myself to be, I will be. So there's no seeming about it in the wrong sense. This is absolute reality. The glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. All the one character that comes through this book, the Lamb of God. There he is, the temple, the light. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honour to it, and the gates shall not be shut day or night. But there shall nothing there that defile it. And then again, he showed me, the third time, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God, and of the Lamb, still the Lamb. And here we have paradise restored. We've got the tree of life, We've got the yielding the fruits every month and then going right back to Genesis 3 where they lost the paradise of God. In Genesis 3, the curse came upon the earth. Here the paradise of God is once more open to them. The tree of life is once more accessible. The fruits are every month instead of once a year and here it comes. No more curse. Verse 3. So this is the supplement, what we've already had. No more death, no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. And his name, this is in contrast to all that dreadful imposition of the mark of the beast, when they had to bear his name in their foreheads. Now it says, his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no candle. Now the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And again, in case you think this is too good to be true, he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. So that's again we're brought up against that fact. Now it comes to a conclusion in this chapter. Verse 8, And I, John, saw these things, and heard them. And again he tells you, he prostrated himself before the angel. And again he was reprimanded, see thou do it not. Keep the sayings of God, worship God. And then in contrast to the last chapter of Daniel, where Daniel had some of these visions and was told to seal up the prophecy till the time of the end, this says, seal not the sayings, for the time is at hand. So Daniel is the book of the Revelation sealed up. And the book of the Revelation is Daniel unsealed. 
the two march together. Glimpse at the chart, will you? For a moment. In the middle. Daniel 7. I've written across the two passages. Book of the Revelation and Daniel. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. That's Daniel and Revelation together. And he said, I saw thrones were cast down. That means to say, put into their place. Because the thrones they sat on were large cushions stuffed with silk and whatnot. Uh, the thrones were set and judgment was given. And the books were opened. Chapter 7 and the book of the Revelation. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. There it is. Daniel shut up, waiting for 2,000 years. Revelation opening it. The time has come for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. No waiting. God's purpose coming at his own good time. And then, just to, just to get this rounded off at the bottom, it says, um, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto thee these things in the churches. I am the root. Well, you can understand anyone being the root of something. Or he says, I am the offspring. You can understand somebody being an offspring. But who is this person who is the root and the offspring of David? Well, again, you see, he's no ordinary person. And the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is the first, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. This is a sort of wonderful invitation coming at the end. Now a witness. I testify to every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Well, those, these words must be addressed to those particularly who will be living in those days. Because how God's going to add the plagues to anyone here in this present day, which have not yet fallen upon the earth, is not quite sensible. So, this has particular reference to those who may be tempted to add to this book or take away from it in the day when it starts to be fulfilled. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. So again, you see, this has to do with that very time. There will be a temptation to stop people seeing what's written in the book of this book of the Revelation because they feel perhaps it might be telling them too much. And out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. I wonder who says Amen. Well, they put a full stop after it. So there's no stops and commas here. The Lord may have said, Surely I come quickly. Amen. But I have a feeling that before he finished saying Amen, somebody else said Amen. And he said, Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. All this last verse, but one. Is that so quite? Here's the promise. I come. Here's the answer. All come quickly. That's our cry. But we're not with impatience. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all while you wait. Well, I haven't done much this evening except in the language of the old Negro printer, I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. You know, I've told you before, haven't I? He was asked 
how it was he prepared his messages. And he said, first of all, I tell them what I'm going to tell them. Then he says, I tell them. And when I've told them, he says, I tell them what I've told them. Well, I've, I've heard some people speak, and when they've said it three times, they only don't know what they're driving at. So at least the old chap did get something over. Well, what I've done this evening is not to try to explain some of the passages, but what I've done is to step through these chapters and say, that's what's in front of us, friends. That's what I want to tell you, what we've been looking at. So when we meet together again, we should go over the ground a little bit in detail, you see, a little bit more carefully, to see just what it's all about. And I trust, when we do get to the end of this series, I shall be able to say, then I'll tell you what I've been telling you. Now, if there's still a piece of tape running, I hope there is, I want to speak to those who are not only sitting in this chapel, but at a distance. I have in mind preparing a series of these tapes under this heading, Can I Help You? Now, I don't want to be deluged, but I'm asking you if you've got some particular obstacle that's worrying you and a problem to you, don't quite know how you're going to tackle it, well, write to me. I'm not going to say I can answer every possible question that you set, but it will give me some idea of the way in which some folks are balked. Now, somebody was saying, didn't understand all this high rigmarole about A, B, C, C, B, A with the structure. Well, to me, it's obvious, but then I, I, it may not be obvious to somebody else. I want to take simple things and help people over certain styles that may be difficult to them. So, I leave it with you. Don't start writing to me on any old subject. But if there's some real subject that you think would help you and others like you that we could incorporate into a series of these Bible studies under the heading, Can I Help You? I hope that the response will justify it and it will be a means of blessing to all concerned.